0: beautiful people. Welcome to Chronicles Abroad. It's a podcast show that uses travel to highlight stories of personal growth. So each week, we'll spotlight the stories of courageous world travelers, creative wanderers, and digital nomads who share their incredible experiences of the world through their eyes. If you like traveling-
1: Welcome to Chronicles Abroad. I am your co-host Nubia, and I'm Francis. And we have a great show for you today. We have an award-winning illustrator who is now Neil shaman Harry Bates. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Harry, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you became an award-winning
2: illustrator? Okay. Well, um, I, I guess it uh, started from my childhood. Actually, as a kid, I had a talent for for art along the way boy (laughs) I'm sorry anyway I did have a talent for art when I was a kid my mother at at some point realized that that seemed to be something that I was more interested in doing than being a doctor or a lawyer or any of that sort of thing so she uh, went about finding information uh, for myself and as well as my older sister who also was a talented illustrator still is of course and one thing led to another went to art school Art Institute of Pittsburgh Back in the uh, the early mid '70s, and from there, moved to Los Angeles to uh, try to start my career, and then from there, I ended up in New York City, where my career actually took off.
0: Okay,
1: great. So, I mean, was art always a passion of yours, though? When I mean, you know, every parent wants their children to be a doctor, a lawyer, and all that that stuff. But was drawing ever something that you really enjoyed doing prior to going to law, uh, art school?
2: Yeah, for me, it was something I really enjoyed doing because it it just calmed me, you know, just kept me in a very calm place, just uh, focusing on, you know, doing portraits, just drawing anything that came to mind. Funny thing about it is that my first time actually attempting to draw was just watching my sister draw stick figures in the back of a book. That was, actually was a library book.
1: <laughs> Not the and library so
2: book. <laughs> I just, yeah, so, you know, so, of course, you know, I'm looking at it and say, oh, that's interesting. Let me try it. You know, and I remember, you know, my first uh, drawings were these little stick figures, that, you know, similar to my sister's. And then from there, I can't even tell you how I ended up just getting more and more involved in actually um, just rendering and, and getting really good at it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, because your clientele is extensive, um, your client list. I mean, you've worked for like Martha Stewart Living, Wall Street Journal, Reader's Digest. I mean, how does that even, how do you trip upon that? I mean, were you just doing illustrations and someone reached out to you or were you actively seeking these type of?
2: Well, after art school, you know, you try to, um, in, in commercial art, basically it was just, you know, in, under the, the, uh, the, the map of commercial art. So illustration, production work, and all that was commercial art. I was a natural illustrator, but when you first get out of school, you know, you just have to find some kind of uh, of, uh, employment within the industry. And after doing that, I mean, I did things from uh, doing portraits at Magic Mountain, you know, amusement Park in Valencia, California, you know, to... uh, just very uh, small mom-and-pop shops and things like that when I was living in Los, in Los Angeles. Uh, there I met a guy who uh, was also had gone to um, art school in um, in uh, Pasadena, and he seemed to have a little more of a uh, in on how the business worked. In other words, his father had an agency, and uh, well, his father had passed by that time, but his father had an agency, and he had some insight, and we became pretty good uh, friends over the years. And by observing how he basically went about getting jobs is is how I ended up learning how to actually get into you know, my foot in the door and get decent jobs. Because when you're running around and you really don't have anyone who really knows the business, you can get out of art school and, you know, it's basically, you know, you you do well. I mean, I did well in, in the school, but you get out. And from there, it's kind of like you know, you're on your own trying to figure out how to, how to get into places and you do all the standard stuff, you know, uh, want ads and, you know, walking into agencies. But nothing helped uh, like having someone who really has a, a handle on how things work there. And so that's basically how I got started with actually doing commercial, professional work. And I ended up moving into New York, did a lot of, uh, you know, walking from one agency to to the next and showing my portfolio. And that's basically how I got started. But what really got me to the point where I was actually doing work for uh, you know, large companies and Marcus Stewart and those guys was that I took out, made an investment in a, uh, a, an ad at that time that there were these, um, there still are these books that for professional illustrators and, and photographers where you pay for an ad and these books go around to all the, uh, the major companies and not so major companies. And if they like what they, uh, what they see, they'll call you. I made this investment. At the time, it was a book called The Black Book. Uh, agencies saw my work. They liked it. Of course, by that time, I was already working for the Wall Street Journal. That was like an entry position for me when I first moved to New York, which, again, I got that due to my friend who had an end somehow, and he was working there. And then he left and told me there was a vacancy. And then you know I ended up working for them doing freelance and then went on staff with them. But during that time, I I ended up uh, taking out an ad uh, in the Black Book with another one of the illustrators, head illustrators at the Wall Street Journal. And from that point on, our our, uh, whole professional status changed.
0: Wow, what a journey. Now, Harry, your illustrations are incredible, absolutely incredible. So what were some of your favorite projects that you uh, produced and that you worked on?
2: I think my favorite was the first project I did for Martha Stewart Living because they just pre- pretty much got me on a whim. They saw some of the other work I was doing a banknote illustration, also. In other words, uh, at the time, I don't think they even use banknotes anymore. But at the time, there was a shortage of the engravers, the guys who actually did the uh, the work on steel plates. To, you know, in other words, that's the kind of stuff that uh, you know you see on dollar bills and you know and, and bonds and things like that. So. They were uh, having this shortage because a lot of the uh, younger guys weren't interested in going through the uh, the process of, uh, uh, it's not a term, I forget what, it, what, um, what it's called, but it's a 15-year process to get to a point where you can actually work on money or work on bills and things like that or, or bonds and things like that. And there were a lot of younger uh, artists at the time who weren't interested in going through it. So the older guys were just starting to die off, so they came to the Wall Street Journal And uh, looked up a couple of the illustrators who were doing, you know, we were doing those portraits for the, uh, you know, for the paper. And they figured, well, you know, that's close to the style that they needed. And I like a challenge. They approached me and asked me if I could do bonds. And, you know, and of course, I never had. But I said, well, you know, it's a challenge. So I did it. And apparently it worked out. And from that point, I ended up uh, shifting my style into something that was akin to a cross between Wall Street Journal type portraits and, uh, and still graving, excuse me, still engraving. But I was using a mechanical pen to do all this stuff. I wasn't actually using, uh, working on, uh, metal plates or anything like that.
1: Okay. So let's, yeah. let's, uh, go right into how did you, and why did you move abroad? So when did you leave the States and head over, um, now is Thailand home now, correct?
2: Yeah, it's home now. Yeah,
1: was Thailand always home, or were you traveling prior to getting here? Well,
2: I've traveled before. I've, uh, I, when my kids were a certain age, I, I, had made a promise to myself that I would take them out of the country, you know, on uh, trips on occasion. And when my son was turning, he was almost thirteen at the time. He was twelve, going on thirteen. I decided that we'd go on our first trip, and so we've. We did a a bit of travel. I mean, I traveled before on my own, before I got married, and, you know, went throughout Europe, and uh, anyway, we ended up, um, I ended up um, taking a trip to Thailand, because I wanted to go on the other side, you know, uh, of, uh, in other words, of the globe. Okay, yeah, before then, I had gone to Egypt. I had gone to Egypt, that was about 20 years ago. But after that point, yeah, I decided that, you know, I wanted to visit Asia. Thailand was one of the places that just that kind of came up. And so I decided to visit Thailand and, uh, you know, had a, a wonderful trip. It was a really refreshing uh, change for being in the energy in, of the uh, United States. You know, each, each area of the, of the planet has its own kind of vibration. That's true. And, yeah, and so Thailand had an interesting vibration for me. Like a year or two later, I um, decided that I would take my son and daughter on a trip, and we did a tour of uh, Thailand with, uh, basically a private tour with Thailand. When I first came, I did a group tour with a, a lot of other people, you know, just to get the feel of, of where it was. And after our private tour, it was just, we had such a great time, it was such a great experience. You know, when they came back to the States, they were kind of bummed out, <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, everything looked gray to them all of a sudden so but uh unfortunately at the time I was going through the breakup of my marriage so one thing led to the uh, to another the marriage breaking up which affected everything including my my business for a while within that time my I talked to my kids, and they wanted to uh, finish school in overseas, and Thailand was the place that we uh, you know, that we decided, and, and in particular Chiang Mai.
1: Oh wow! So it was pretty much the kids that got you guys over here for a longer period of time.
2: Yeah, I mean, if they didn't if they didn't want to go, I probably would not have left the states.
1: Wow. Okay.
2: So yeah, we we did do that. Uh, that happened in 2007, late 2007. So I've been here for over 10 years. My daughter's still here, and my son he returned to uh, the States about two years ago.
0: So Harry, how was that like you know having raising two children in Thailand? What was that experience like as a parent?
2: Uh, I think it's like not so much different from if you were raising them in the states in some ways. you know uh, when kids become teenagers, man, it just gets to be a thing, you know. It was, it was, I ended up with a few <laughs> a few challenges, different types of challenges. You know, the challenge was my son, and then, uh, you know, uh, my daughter, she had, you know, a, f- a few struggles, but, they, you know, they worked their way through it, or I should say, we worked our way through it. He, I, he ended up in Bangkok for a while, going to college down there. And while my daughter, she was at a uh, international school. Well, they both started out at an international school. He graduated and ended up going down to Bangkok. And from the international school, we decided that um, there was some distractions there, so we decided that she would finish her schooling by doing uh, homeschooling.
1: Oh wow! Okay, so there's going to be a lot of listeners that have children who really want to take the leap of faith, but are you know kind of in a crossroads, right? Because they have children. I also have children, and so
0: does Francis. know, we're more than just travel. We provide tips, resources, and hacks for the curious traveler in you. So whether you're a lover of travel or just someone who is ready for a change, we have something for everyone.
1: And what advice would you give a parent who would like to potentially come abroad and have children?
2: Well... Of course, everybody's experience is different. It depends on it depends on your personality, really, as to what you can get away with doing, or not to say get away with doing, like you are doing something another you know. But for me personally, I we talk about I'm going to be talking about you know neo shamanism, uh, you know, coming up, and how I function in this world has always been totally connected to that aspect of my of my life. So when I came to Thailand, there was just a sense that. That was the right place to go, to come. And when I started to plan the trip, uh, even against the protest of you know of certain individuals, everything fell into place for me. And one of the things I do remember uh, specifically was the whole idea of fearing the adventure. I put that you know, just basically deleted that whole sense of of anything. And I had pretty much like probably some of the people that are listening to your podcast, there'll be people who will tell them, oh, you don't want to go there. You know, they try to tell you the worst aspects of traveling when they've never been to the place that you're going. You know, they've read some stuff. But again, it has to do with who you are as to how well you'll do in, in a foreign country. One of the things is to be extremely open minded about where you are. Don't expect anything to be like where you came from. If you have that in mind. You're going to do fine.
0: And I totally agree with that, Harry. You know, when I decided to move abroad, you know, my family members, bless their heart, you know, (laughs) and they're from the Caribbean. So they have some superstitions and all this other stuff. So, but, you know, they've never really traveled. And so you've got to take everything with a grain of salt and you've got to speak to people who are actually in it, have done it. And really, you know, be careful taking advice from folks who have never traveled outside of the country. And so you mentioned it earlier about neo shamanism and this is I'm very interested in this very very interested so tell us a little bit how your illustrations were a part of that and tell us how that whole process started for you
2: Well illustration is primarily a means to an end and in other words it was it was something that I was very good at I more than actually doing the work I enjoyed this <laughs> is the fact that I was able to be successful at it. <laughs> you know, so that was uh, the major part of it at the time. But um, as far as with um, art, is just one of those things that's part of a. Of a um, if you think in terms of universal consciousness, of, of, you know that those type of skills, art, anything that's creative has a stronger connection to the other side, because you're using other aspects of your, of your consciousness, of your awareness to create the things that you create. It's like, how does one create a, an original score? You know, where does it come from? You know, it comes from a place that, in other words, that's not really that, you know, defined in this world, but it has to do with your connection to your own higher consciousness and then just the energy that floats around the universe, you know? So when it came to uh, neo-shamanism, that's, a, that's basically a journey as well. I mean, I have numerous, I uh, have a family of uh, seven, you know, I have six siblings, five sisters, one brother. And of my sisters, three of them are psychic, one of them extremely so. So it was something that was kind of natural for us. We, it kind of evolved with us uh, as kids being aware that we were experiencing different things and we would share that information. My mother also is sensitive and she was never one who practiced, but she would tell us the stories of things that would happen and things, you know, spirits were showing up and, you know, or something manifesting inside the house and, and things like that. And, you know, so from there, we, had a pretty healthy uh, curiosity about it. But what really um, pushed me further on was just my own personal experiences with things that went bump in the night and then trying to figure out what the heck they were. So I spent getting my hand a long time, decades, uh, books and things that I, you know, that would pertain to the experiences that I was having. And one thing led to to another. I, I started to learn aspects of what was going on on the other side. And from there, you know, I ended up just getting more and more into, uh, I'm not sure if this is really explained, but it's getting more and more into uh, the mystical.
0: Okay, great. So for those of our audience who are not sure what neo-shamanism is, can you explain what that is?
2: Yeah, neo-shamanism is just a term that I, I coined because I couldn't really find anything that really related to uh, what I do other than shamanism. Shamanism has to do with uh, dealing with as many aspects of the other side, as you know, as, as make themselves available to you. When you're basically doing things like you know healing work, someone has some kind of a of a disease, discomfort, injury, or whatever. We usually tap into that other side to see what the problem is. Sometimes, if someone's having a series of of accidents or or what they considered bad luck, nine times out of ten, from my experience, it has to do with something that's on the other side. And the key to understanding neo shamanism is understanding that. Everything in the universe is consciousness. So, everything is energetic consciousness, even the air that we breathe, the, you know, and everything, basically everything. So, when I deal with someone, and as far as like healing, I'm looking to see what's on the other side that's affecting them, and certain things purposely will affect the person. You'll find someone all of a sudden getting sick, and that has to do with something that's a consciousness on the other side. Affecting that person's energy. Wow. I don't know if I went off the rails on that. No, but no, anyway. no.
0: I, I totally understand it. Like I said, I'm, I'm, my family's from the Caribbean. We're Haitian, so we, we understand all the how the spirit stuff. And I have an aunt who is very spiritual in that sense, and every dream she has typically comes true. So walk us through what's that like for you when you are doing uh, the healing process with someone, and you know what does that look like if you're able to share with us.
2: Yeah, I can. Uh, the first part of it, which is extremely important, is conversation. We'll do a session before this session starts. I'll sit, and one, we need to find out what you are looking for, you know, from your visit. And if you just, if you, um, that is, if you don't have something that's specific, like you know, I have this reoccurring pain that's coming back, and so on and so forth, and you know, it's just been. Uh, causing them, you know causing uh, the person problems over you know a long period of time or whatever, I'll have a conversation with you to see where you are to see how open your consciousness is. So I'll ask certain questions about what kinds of experiences you might have had during that time. I'm scanning your energy, just like most shamans. There is always someone or someone's on their other side who, who basically help you out when you're doing certain things. So if you're missing something, you'll, I'll get a certain psychic tap on the shoulder and, and point me in, a, in, a, in, a, in another direction. But uh, everyone on this planet has attachments, what's called attachments. And these are conscious entities, energy. Sometimes they take the form of people. Sometimes they're just, you know, a ball of, of, of dense energy that's basically blocking the flow of your chi. Your so part of my work is, has some aspects of Reiki in it. Also, I use muscle testing a lot, which basically I'm using your own body consciousness to answer questions. And that way it's more effective for the person I'm working with because, you know, when uh, I do uh, muscle testing, it's like I have you hold your arm out. And I push to try to push your arm down, and I tell you to resist. You know, resist, your arm should lock. shouldn't be able to move it. Then I'll tell your body to release the arm. But you still try to keep your arms, in other words, straight and, you know, and resist. But your arm should go down, which is nine times out of ten it does. Depending on how much contamination or how many attachments a person has, I have to work through it sometimes because their arm just won't, won't want to move. So, again, when I'm dealing with that, I'm you know, like I said, I, I, I'll talk to the person to get a gist of where they're at. Then my conversation and information I give to you will go into your subconscious and start to affect the workings. Because in all of us, we're starving for some information that goes beyond this realm, you know, goes beyond commercialism, goes beyond what they show you in movies and TV programs and anything else that they can, you know – any institution on the planet. So, anyway.
1: So, so you've been in Thailand for 10 years. Yes. Um, When you came over here, was it your calling to just retire from illustrations or have you retired from illustrations?
2: I haven't and, totally. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. To All right.
1: Mad. No, 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 that's fine. That's. I just wanted to see how that works because another thing is people, you know, are very curious on how people make a living abroad, right? So this is your business here full time is, is helping people to tap into their energies and helping. It's almost like what spiritual cleansing. Is that what you would call it?
2: Yeah, it's cleansing, but it goes a lot further than that. Uh, the journey aspect has to do with once I start working on a person, then their story comes out. So your story will span uh, lifetimes, and it will span beyond before you ever became anything that resembled a human, you know, or a humanoid. So that's another aspect of the work. Once I start. It doesn't. Uh, most times, it doesn't happen. You know, within the first couple of sessions, that you get to that point. It has to do with you know. In other words, I have to like. Rip a lot of stuff off of a person's consciousness in order to start to actually get the real story as to where they come from and basically tell you what your propensity is as a higher Give you which basically will, uh, of what direction you should be going in. And it's not like I'm going to choose your direction. You're going to find out on your own through these processes.
0: Yeah, that's great. Because I was actually just thinking, okay, so somebody comes to you. And you ask a series of questions, then you get a sense of their energy, then you do a little bit of body work. And so when it's all said and done, you know, what, how do people feel? What kind of insights do they typically gain and, and what do they walk away from knowing?
2: Well, everybody's different. Everyone gets something different, but they always get something. You know, some get more of a connection to their, whole, uh, their higher consciousness and they become more psychic. Generally, I can read when someone is closer to being a psychic than not, and then I have a number of people come in and they just think some odd thing that was just random, you know, didn't really amount to anything because a lot of, uh, when I was coming up, there was a lot of poo-pooing anything that was outside the realm of what they considered to be normal. But not so much, I should say, within, I would say in a broader societal thing, a Western societal view of it, but not so much, I say, as, uh, you know, black folks. You know, when I came up, you know, my great-grandmother was a shaman, and she, hers, leaned more towards the Native American because she was a Blackfoot. But then there is that that comes from the African aspect. In other words, so we had them on both sides, you know, African as as well as those who were indigenous Americans or indigenous to the continent of America. Man, I just went off... (laughs) What was the question again?
0: I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I was, no, (laughs) I'm loving it. I was just asking what people walk away from, Uh, but you did answer it. And then, which was great because then you got into sort of the family history because I always find it interesting. And I, it's, you know, I was actually looking for a shaman. So it's interesting that I'm having this conversation. (laughs) And so how do people actually find you?
2: you getting me, and it's like my coming out <laughs> party or something. Uh, I think you got my name from uh, Phyllis, uh, Phyllis Serene. Yes. And at the time, I had, uh, was spending a lot of time uh, basically practicing what I do. And then I was, I don't know what they call people, bee pigs, but I had a lot of uh, Thai folks that I worked on. And one of the things I liked about working with Thai people is that there's not this whole concept or idea about, uh, you know, do you believe in ghosts or anything? You know, if you ask them that question, you're just like, you might as well just ask, when was the last time you saw a ghost? Mm-hmm. they very much aware, even if there are those who will pretend that they're not, but they're very much aware that the other side, you know, is a real thing. And Thailand is chock-a-block full of spirits that are running around even with their rituals for you know for uh, sending someone off when they pass <laughs> there's still a whole lot of uh, of disembodied indies walking around and you know some of them cause trouble some of them are fine you know no problem but as far as um, it's funny for some reason i'm thinking i'm thinking of another question you would ask me and it started to it's starting to filter in what uh, to what i'm saying right now you know what? I'm going to go back and answer this one question that you had because you were, you were asking about um, how does one you know make a living. I'll just tell you that uh, when I came here, I was still doing illustration work. The more I got into doing the uh, the, the uh, neo shamanic work, the the less I focused on you know, uh, my illustration work. But I still have clients that I, I do work for. I do work for uh, this old house is a regular one, and then some. Uh, random ones, uh, some of the Tiffany and... Well, occasionally I still do some stuff for Martha Stewart's uh, living, but not as much as I used to. But the thing is that I was able to do my work vis-a-vis the computer. And when I was living in Woodstock, when I moved out of the city and lived in Woodstock, that's how I was working there. In other words, I, once it got to the point where I could do everything on the, uh, and send all my jobs in and get my projects by, uh, by email... I never really had to go anywhere. I was up in, <clears throat> excuse me, up in the mountains of Woodstock most of the time, and working out of my studio that was next to my house. When I decided, uh, we thought about coming to Thailand. You know, it just made logical sense. I said, "Well, if I make it, you know, doing it here in Woodstock, why couldn't I, you know, make it doing it, uh, you know, here in Thailand with the World Wide web?" And that's literally what happened. I ended up, uh, you know, moving. And I was able to maintain uh, uh, my clientele.
0: Okay, fabulous. So this is a logistical question. Mm -hmm. So you're a shaman who also does part-time illustrations. How does the visa work for you?
2: Uh, When I first got here, I was on a retirement visa because I was 52 when I first moved in. You have to be over 50 in order to get a retirement visa. And you have to have a certain amount of cash in the bank in order to uh, uh, renew those visas every year. Uh, So as of eight years, yeah, I had you know what I needed in in the bank. I didn't really you know I didn't need to do uh, you know uh, visa runs or anything like that. But a couple years ago, I ended up going below the amount. So I there's a number of ways that people uh, find in other words find a stay in the in the country, and one you uh, you you can um, take Thai lessons from a school that teaches. Then they'll give you an ED visa, which is basically an educational visa. That allows you to, um, you know, you pay the, the fee for the school, then you show up at classes, and then it allows you to stay in the in the country for a year, you know, and you have to do the uh, the three month, you know, check in every three months, and when that year is out, you can you can actually redo it again, and you can up to maybe four years, I think, of uh, of these types of, uh, you know, this type of, on this type of visa. For me, it was actually kind of good that I ended up having to do that because I would never have met Phyllis. And when I was actually, uh, I met her actually, I think in November or October or something, uh, the end of last year. And it was just kind of like a kismet type of deal. It was one of those things where I, my, I was supposed to have had the visa done a month before, then like a, a month later. Uh, well, actually what happened is that my, my, uh, my passport Less than six months on it. So when I went to Laos, they, they said, well, we can't let you in with a passport that has less than six months, you know, left on it. Yeah, and so I ended up having to, you know, to, uh, you know go come all the way back to Chiang Mai and then go to uh, the counseling and uh, apply for a new passport and all of that. And so one thing led to another, you know, that I, I didn't get penalized or anything because, you know, um, one, I didn't realize that I wouldn't get penalized. But the way that they they count it is if you're uh, if you get your um, passport and, and the uh, the visa uh, before your three month check-in, you know you don't get a, you know you don't get penalized. So I had enough time before that. But one thing led to another where I was, you know, at a couple of days, a couple of weeks I was supposed to go. And for some reason, something would happen and I wouldn't be able to go. And then finally I ended up going and I met Phyllis there. And it was kind of a really interesting kind of a situation because she had gone the day uh, and had done her visa her run the day before in Vientiane, but she decided to stay over a day. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to spend any more time in Vintian than I wanted, than I, you know, than I wanted to. So on the way back, we ended up meeting on the way to the airport. Someone told me to tell her that I, that I've been doing this type of work. And next thing you know, she's like been gung ho behind and, and pushing, you know, me out into the forefront with what I do.
0: So a lot of it is just word of mouth.
2: Yeah, it's been word of mouth primarily. Um, I was you know for me I'm kind of a perfectionist so I like to really know I'm doing what you know if I'm doing something that is really you know it's solid. So most of my clients were uh, were Thai in the beginning. And a lot of them because I was doing things at a discount, you know, some of them were just paying with, you know, they just bring me gifts and things like that. But it was fine because it, it just helped, you know, it just helped me hone my, my skill. Also, hone my daughter's skill because I, I trained her from the time she was 13. And she's now, uh, I think she just turned 25. And she still, she lives here in, uh, in Chiang Mai as well. Yeah, it just ended up that it was time for me to to go out, and like I said, when I was doing all this practicing and on these particular people, the ties were very interesting again, because their minds were where mine was when I was in the states, as far as like the other the other world, the other side, and they had a lot of experiences, you know, and I was then uh, my uh, success rate with, with them was you know was hundred. And that's wow. because where their minds are, they, they understand that there's this other realm. If you're dealing with someone who's kind of blocked in that, in that regards, it's kind of hard for you to, you know, in other words, you can do work on them, but they may return back into uh, inviting things back into their sphere because they, you know, they don't quite get it. You know, in the end, I can actually get someone who's a Westerner cleared, which I have, but it just sometimes it just takes more than a few sessions to do that. You know, so if anyone's looking for like a quick fix for anything when it comes to that type of, uh, of of deal some people yeah they have a pain that's that's in their arm or that's connected to something that's attached I remove it yeah they they feel better the next day and you know and, but there's these there are these things that are persistent so when people have something that's building up as a terminal illness you really have to catch whatever it is that's interfering and or that's uh, you know basically uh, Manipulating their energy to cause them to have these types of uh, of uh, symptoms, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: No, it makes sense, but it's funny. I just woke up this morning (laughs) saying to myself, I need to do a visa run.
2: (laughs) So thank you for providing me.
1: I think that's the one thing I can tell people about living abroad. If you're not on a visa that has you in a country for a long period of time or for like a full year, it is a pain. Because I actually do the month to month, the 30 day
2: Oh, wow. In and
1: out, yeah, for right now. I've only been in Thailand now since August. So it's been close to, you know, a little over six months. And um, so I'm getting a hang of it. But I woke up this morning saying, oh, my goodness, uh, yeah, I got to go on a visa run. <laughs> so
2: <laughs> when I heard your story, I'm like, yeah, OK. Yep. Yeah, if you can afford it, I would do a a, um, a school visa, basically, an ED visa. And they claim mandatorily you're supposed to spend three hours, six hours, actually, a week. So it's like two days a week where, you know, the school will ask you to show up and, you know, and attend classes. Uh, the classes I did, first one I did, there were a number of people who were coming, you know, some were, you know, Chinese and Vietnamese and whatever, and some from America, whatever. And it was me and this other French guy in there. And we were, I really wanted to learn how to read Thai, which is a bear in itself. We ended up being like the only guys showing up because these other guys, they were basically getting their, you know, their visas, and they would just go about their business. They'd show up for a couple classes, and then you wouldn't see them. But I would always see them when it was time for the, the three-month at the, <laughs> the uh, mall. I bet you did. I bet <laughs> you did. Yes. <Yeah. laughs> so, so, you know, that was something that supposed to crack down on a few years ago, but not so much.
1: <laughs> no. No, Thailand, I think, is a pretty laid-back country. They are pretty much about, you know, you pay us, and you get to stay.
2: Yeah, yeah. They were changing a lot of stuff over uh, the last five years and made things somewhat difficult for, uh, you know, for, for some of the expats who are here. But, you know, they find ways around their own, you know, <laughs> their own rules. So, yeah, they're pretty laid back about it. And that's one of the things I actually do like about uh, Thailand is, you know, even when it comes to how they drive around on the road, they're not the best drivers, but... You know, if you're I mean, I lived in New York City, so I'm a, you know, I'm a defensive driver. So I'm used to looking you know, looking over my shoulder every, every few seconds. But I find that, yeah, you know, that the whole strictness of uh, like how the states and, and then too, dealing with the police here is just a totally different thing. You know, you know, I lived in Los Angeles and I've lived, you know, in this in this in New York. And in LA, you know, they just bug you because you're a brother. You know, that was just that was the way it was when I was there. You know, and here they don't bug you. You know, for being a brother, they'll bug you for being a tourist. But they really won't bug you. They'll just try to catch you with these checkpoints. If you don't have your your you're driving a a bike and you don't have a license, you know, they'll like. (laughs)
0: But then if even you have the license, give me a thousand bucks. Yeah, I bought
2: a ticket and you have to go to the police station and, you know, and and sometimes actually going to the police station is cheaper.
0: It's so true. So, Harry... Let me ask you. So we're just going to transition a little Mm -hmm. bit. So do you, how often do you visit the States? Do you go back or what's that like? I haven't been back in 10 years. (laughs) Oh no. Are you? (laughs) Uh,
2: I I have no desire to go back to that place. I've been to Tibet. I've been to Egypt. I've been to China, (laughs) but I, you know, I've been allowed, I've been Burma. No, I know what's in the states, and I can feel still feel it. I have a lot of family there. You know, we communicate these yeah. uh, you know, by I mean uh, via Skype. Um, you know, and some of them uh, had come out. My older sister uh, used to come out and visit me. You know, well, once a year or whatever. But um, no, there's there's something about the uh, the states that I just really have no you know interest in in, in uh, experiencing anymore being out of the States is a lot more, uh, fulfilling for me. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I feel like I'm in the world when I'm out of America.
1: I agree. I agree. I haven't even been gone yeah. for a full year and um totally not interested in going back to the States. Um, so my children yeah. are 21 and 18. And had it oh, okay. not been for them still being in the States, then I would, uh, just stay put, you know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so
1: question is Asia, has Asia been majority of it travels Asia and Europe, or have you taken the opportunity to travel from Thailand to go over to places like Australia and Africa and different places? Cause what I do love about being in Thailand is that it's accessible.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, this year, uh, passed, um, in, uh, in April, I went to, um, Visit my friends in Egypt, and we did a, uh, a spiritual tour. Yeah. So he's um, he does um, shamanic work as well. But he uses fragrances for a lot of his work, and he does Reiki as well. His family, the Ifayads, have been in that part of uh, in Giza for a long, long time. He has a picture of a, their house before the government moved them from in front of the, the um, in front of the Sphinx. They used to live like right in front of the Sphinx. And so, yeah, so uh, I've known him for about 20 years, you know, and he's been a good friend. And so I asked for, a, you know, I said, I'm getting that, you know, my, my daughter and I, we need to uh, come to Egypt, you know, and he's been trying to get me to come for a while anyway. Again. And he put together a package for me, and it was, like, wonderful. Oh, it was the best trip ever. And so we went to, you know, some of the various places that most people go to, and then we went to uh, Off the Beaten Path went into, uh, you know, you go and do these tours, you go into pyramids and so on and so forth. <coughs> certain pyramids I didn't need to go into. You know, I was just getting information and I was there. And certain pyramids I did have to go into. And uh, we went from uh, Giza, we went to uh, Luxor. And from Luxor, we went down, to, uh, did the, um, went down the Nile on, the, on a boat to Aswan, uh, which is um, where, near where the Nubian villages were that are now underwater, unfortunately, because of the dam that they put up there. So we did that. We went to uh, you know the Valley of the Kings and Queens and picked up a lot of information on uh, how the female hier- hierarchy actually worked in Egypt, which is not really anything that you're going to find in writing. It was just a really wonderful, mystical experience, very wonderful. So I didn't know if you wanted me just to get all the way into <laughs> my Egypt trip, but anyways...
1: <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. It. I mean, the thing about it is I, I want our listeners to understand that, you know, travel doesn't have to be scary, right? Like you can go and just have such a good time. You meet people along the way, you develop friendships, you develop new relationships, you learn something about yourself in the midst of it, you know. Um, and can you let us know maybe a lesson that you've learned throughout your tenure, you know, abroad.
2: One of the things I find that helps me is if I'm going to a, a country I haven't been to before, like when I, I went to Tibet, I had to go through China, you know, so I was in China for a bit. Every now and then, you know, you'll somebody will kind of swindle you out of a few dollars or whatever, and I just look at it as just, you know, the cost of traveling. You know, if someone doesn't... You know, if I'm not foolish enough to allow someone to steal everything that I have, you know, that, you know, definitely bring it down a bit. But, you know, there's always been a, a cabbie or somebody who, you know, weaseled a few more bucks out of me than the, you know, than the rate, you know. And, you know, I just look at it and I go, eh, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, and I just keep moving. But you can't let little things like, you know, that. Really upset. In other words, what your uh, what your goal is. Your goal is actually to go and experience a new place, and and if you're in it, if you allow yourself to be in a, I say a very, I should say just up mode or or very balanced, you know, uh, temperament. You tend to have a much better time, even in spite of something like that happening. You find that it, you know, it may happen maybe once or something like that. But the rest of the trip depends on how I interact with the other people. So if I'm laid back, which I tend to be, I'm, you know, and I, I'm laid back with my tour guides or whatever, you'll find that you um, they'll open up more to you if you're laid back and you're chill, you know. And I've had tour guides who will tell me that, you know, they've had people who were just totally anal retentive and they were just all uptight. And it affected how they, you know, how the tour went and what they were willing to show them or or, or how much they were willing to do for them on the, you know, on the tour. So that's one thing. It's just try to keep yourself, you know, just relax. It's not the end of the world. So someone, you know, uh, ripped you off of $10 more than they're supposed to, you know, pay for something. It's like, eh, you know, it's just a thing. It's fleeting. Yeah. yeah,
0: no, I totally agree with that, because I always say, sometimes when I have conversations with folks who, you know, they get upset with with certain things that happen, I'm like, just charge it to the travel game. That's the travel tax. That's the tax you pay with travel. So, uh, you know, I my son got was actually visiting Thailand. He visited for the first time, and he got swindled. And I was like, listen, just give him 100 extra baht so we can be done with the situation. <laughs> and that's all it took. And he was fine with it, and we moved on, you know?
2: Yeah, what, 100 extra bots, 3 bucks, you know. <laughs> you know, it's it's you know, it's incredibly inexpensive to actually, you know, uh, buy your way out of certain little predicaments at times. It's like, you know, extra 100 bots. Oh, yeah, give them $3 and they say, "Okay." You know. I mean, I lived in New York City, man, for years. It's like, you know, you can't get away with anything for $3, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I bet. But it's funny when you stay in that mentality, like I've noticed that the longer I stay in the, oh, it's only $3 or, oh, it's only $9, you end up spending a lot more because you're consistently comparing it to the U.S. prices. But I have to remind myself, Nubia, you're no longer in the U.S. So don't compare the prices. Look at what what you can afford now, what, you know, the prices now, because I still, even though, You know, I understand it's a lot cheaper. I don't like to be taken advantage of that at all. And that situation kind of happened to me in Indonesia, where I called a a Grab, which is the Asian version of Uber, and it was like 20,000 rupee or rupiah. And the driver ends up texting me and says, if you pay me 60,000, I'll come get you. And I was floored. I was floored because I had never had something like that happen to me,
2: you know? Wow. Yeah, well, that's a different situation where you you weren't able to uh, find another Uber, but it, it had to do with you getting to the airport or something on time.
1: No, the funny thing about it is, it was uh, late in the in the morning. So a few girlfriends and I had met up in Bali, so we went out, and it was after midnight. Mm-hmm. And when you're in Bali, there are no real taxis. I call them they're mm-hmm. you know locals that have cars and they'll you know they're private drivers. Yeah, right. right. A lot of times. Um, right. So, you know, I I didn't feel comfortable using one of the private drivers. I felt more comfortable using um, Grab or Uber because the app at least tracks you and that kind of stuff, being a single woman abroad. And it it was only one person that kept coming up. Nobody else. <laughs> and, he, and he knew it. And he knew it. So basically, okay. you know, I tried and then I had one of my girlfriends try and she got the same guy. And then it was just like, it was like, forget it. After this while, we were just over it. And it was such, it was an experience that if someone had told me ahead of time, I would have been prepared for it. But because I didn't know, it really set the tone.
2: Yeah, well, he obviously knew that he was one of the few in that area. That's why he's, you know, you know he he's run that scam on more than a few people because he uh,
1: exactly. <laughs> and then I find out later on that this is normal, and I'm like, this is not normal. This is not cool. And of course, this is an this is an Ubud, so it's the tourist capital of you know Bali. And I was just like, you know, I felt so bad. But anywho, so Harry. Last question for you. Okay. So you have traveled abroad over the age of 50, am I not mistaken? Yeah, actually
2: I turned 63 last year.
0: So it's time to dive deep and look into the holistic perspective of travel. We believe traveling is an investment in you. So our mission is to inspire you to book that flight, check that item off your bucket list, and go on that adventure. And our hope is to ignite connections all over the world. Okay, well, what
1: would you tell some of our seasoned travelers who are looking to retire or looking to travel
2: hmm.
0: over fifty? Um,
2: boy, I really don't know what to tell them. To tell you the truth, um, I mean, for me personally, um, I just had a totally different uh, reason for for wanting to uh, leave, but. Geez, that's really hard for me to really say. Um, One thing is that, you know, you really got to throw your fear out the window, you know. And if if you're nervous about uh, moving somewhere, just go and visit the place. If if you have to visit it a couple times before you get uh, comfortable with the whole idea. And one of the the other things, if you do relocate it to a country that's not an English-speaking country, try to learn the language.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's good advice, and a lot of people feel like you, you know, you don't have to do what other people have done, such as pack up and just move abroad. If it means take an extended vacation and come and check it out first, do so. But also, know with that, I just want to tap in because I do have friends who are, you know, or people that I've met abroad that are over the age of fifty. Is that you're not you're not alone? There is a community of people, you know, within you guys' age group because it's not all twenty somethings you know, I'm 40 and, you know, I see the millennials everywhere. I mean, they're just all over the world, but there is um, a huge population of people over the age of 40 and 50 that do travel and live abroad. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. So I thank you so much for joining us today. And I just look forward to meeting you physically since we both live in the same city. You know what? Best of luck to you in all your future endeavors. I thank you so much for being on the show.
0: So, Harry, have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Chronicles Abroad. Please support us by sharing this podcast through your social media platforms. Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram and hit that like button at Chronicles underscore Abroad. Find us online at our website, ChroniclesAbroad.com for tips, resources and ways we can collaborate. So don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Until then, beautiful people, thanks for listening. Music by Stephanie James and Almighty K-Rock, produced by Adam Marcus.